Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have yet another extra special guest, Professor Anat Admadi, teaches at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She is an expert in so many fascinating areas that you wouldn't think are related, but they really are. Why has technology developed the way it has and more or less uh, exempt from, from a lot of government regulations or protected by government regulations. Turns out their business model is a little similar to the way the banking industry has managed to capture a lot of regulators and uh, continue to operate fairly freely without the sort of uh, regulation and capital requirements and equity requirements uh, that would make banking safer. Uh, really a fascinating conversation about everything from misinformation to technology to banking and financial fragility. I found the discussion to be quite fascinating, and I think you will also. With no further ado, my interview with Professor Anat Admadi of the Stanford Graduate School of Business. So let's talk a little bit about your background. You have a lot of degrees. You, you have a bachelor's from Hebrew University, then a master's in arts, a master's in philosophy, and a PhD from Yale University. Tell us a little bit about your academic journey. So my journey starts where I took a lot of math. I was good in math, and I loved math. It was very pretty. It was all, but I decided I probably won't be good enough to be a mathematician. So it was kind of in my romantic mind when I was, you know, in, in my early 20s, I was going to take but not give back to math, you know, that kind of <laughs> right. thing. And and so I had to find something. And at first it was going to be sort of applied math, like operations research, which was the worst kind of math, it's like optimization. <sighs> yeah. And it's kind of boring. And but I got an opportunity to go to Yale. And these degrees were just kind of simultaneously gotten. I mean, I was out of Yale 
in three and a half years with okay. all these degrees. Um, and I just, an opportunity landed on my lap to go to uh, this program in operations research at Yale. And I was promised that Yale is very interdisciplinary. And once you pass your you know, qualifying exams, you can do whatever you want. But and I had never taken an economics course before uh-huh. that. But when I got to Yale, my advisor said, why don't you take microeconomics and take you know, mathematical economics and take some economics. And by the end of the first year, I kind of knew a new language. Like I, right. And it was all much more interesting because there was interactions between people and equilibrium and you know, all of that. And by second year, I took the course that was absolutely a must take in the crowd that I was hanging with, which was Steve Ross Financial Economics. Mm-hmm. Yale didn't even have a program in finance. The School of Management was just created. This huh. was back in the late 70s, early 80s. And he was just teaching people all they needed to know about finance, which was just coming up. It had become professionalized when before it was just a bunch of disparate theories. So you find your calling in in economics, but you really take some of your background and, and dig pretty deep into financial regulations and technology. Where did the tech background then, come from? I'll tell you. So that all, I was totally in, in the sort of finance bubble. First kind of, you know, market microstructure, you know, trading mechanisms. This is the quaint, you know, 1987 mm-hmm. you know, little Black Monday, you know, small Black Monday. Not <laughs> Just that little uh, one little, day glitch, sure. 19% decline in one day. 22, 22, 22 point was, something, yeah. It, yeah, so it was program trading and insurance, the portfolio yes. insurance and all these replication strategies and all this stuff. Um, and so that was kind of the, the the little crisis of the day, right in the little details. And that's before high frequency trading and all the rest of it. Right. But then I worked on trading mechanisms and how information gets into prices and informed and uninformed trading and markets for information and newsletters and managed money, portfolio theory. And then and then I got more interested in, in kind of governance, but governance in the narrow sense, corporate governance and contracts, which was all about the problems between shareholders and managers. So that was that, and then comes the financial crisis. So until the financial crisis of 2007 to nine, or however you go, you mm-hmm. actually you know time it, I was in this finance bubble. I was teaching corporate finance. Uh, I did research, uh, theoretical research. So I built little mathematical models and analyzed them. And uh, and I lived in that little, little bubble thinking all is well. Uh, until this crisis was like, what just happened? And so I I never was interested in banking particularly. We have a lot of silos, you know, even within economics, let, sure. let alone in all the social sciences and law and all of that. So we're each in our little silo with our little journals, all this stuff. So I just got curious. Wait a minute. I teach corporate finance. The bank is also a corporation. Now, why does it have like almost no equity funding. What's going on there? I teach people capital structure theory and and how are banks so different? Why are they so different? They hate equity with this passion. And so the more I dug, the weirder it got. It really like I fell in a rabbit hole. It totally was a rabbit hole. Like curiouser and curiouser, you know, that kind of thing. Well, well, tell me if I'm oversimplifying banking because what we've seen over the past half century before the financial crisis was simply banks figured out that the less capital they keep on the books, the better their profit margins appear, even though they're essentially just assuming more risk, and the better the profit margins are, the richer everybody got. And so we've seen a half century of 
first deregulation, then fairly radical deregulation, all of which worked to the bank's advantages until suddenly it no longer did. So in the book, we go through a lot of the history of banking, including the basic banking model, which is sort of it's a wonderful life, kind of 363 boring banking model. And that, too, had a crisis in savings and loan and in many other right. banking crises. So it's not like bank, banking is inherently risky because inherently the bank's taking risk with uh, with depositors' money, and the depositors are unable to really behave like normal creditor. And that's really sort of the beginning of the sort of original sin in banking, that they're always over-leveraged. Oh, always. They are never efficient in in providing any of the services on both sides of the balance sheet, because they always have the temptation and the ability to take just a little bit more risk on both sides of the balance That's sheet. That's the nature of, of fractional reserve lending you get. Well, but, but, but it's their incentives. So the key to understand it is it's not like essential or efficient. It's just that that's how they want it. So, so the thing is that banking is sort of inherently fragile because banking is inherently inefficient that way mm-hmm. or forever poorly regulated or poorly controlled by their investors, including the depositors. So to that you add expansion in the business model that allows taking more risk, hiding more risk with derivatives, with universal banking, all of that, and the increase in safety nets, implicit and explicit, with deposit insurance, with all of that, they became able and obviously interested in living more and more and more in debt. Now, in my research, even after the first, after the book, we were already beginning to do this research, I understood a lot better stuff that we teach in basic courses as very static theory of how companies fund. And it's like one round of funding, debt and equity, and then the world is over. But for real living, you know, breathing uh, companies, any company, the funding decision as well as investment decisions are always made by shareholders or people or managers on behalf of shareholders maybe in light of previous commitment so in the dynamics of it once you took debt Mm-hmm. Your preferences change completely. You're no longer maximizing total value of the firm. You're maximizing the value of equity in the firm. And from that perspective, equity seems expensive to all, co- to all heavily indebted corporations, banks in particular, because for other corporations, if they take on more and more debt, the creditors will start pushing back. Mm-hmm. The creditors will start putting covenants. The creditors will, will will jack up the rates because the creditors will worry about all the distorted incentives of the borrower lender that happen. Mm-hmm. Gamble the money in Las Vegas or underinvest in things because there's not enough upside. All of those things that characterize sort of the frictions uh, that uh, uh, characterize heavy indebtedness. So, so that makes the finance sector very different than the rest of the stuff. Well, market? the banking, especially because the uh, the creditors in banking are particularly passive. And mm-hmm. and so therefore the the usual market forces that push against high leverage in other companies that just naturally with no regulation would limit. There's no corporation that lives it's healthy unless they're on their way to bankruptcy that lives with single digit equity numbers. Of course, it depends how right. you measure it. And there's book market, all kinds of other things that we can discuss. But the banks basically got used to and got stuck, and it's very addictive to be there, especially at this extremely low equity level. From that vantage with the overhang of debt being so, so heavy that you're effectively 
insolvent all the time, but you just not recognize as huh. such, then you, you hate well, equity, you want to take money out. So so let's stay with that point, because yeah. that's pretty fascinating. Uh, it was pretty clear to observers that the reason Lehman Brothers didn't get bailed out is they were not just a little insolvent, but deeply insolvent. The rest of the banks that were out there that survived seemed to recapitalize. They sold equity. They brought more money in. Goldman Sachs took a big chunk of money from Warren Buffett. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase bought Washington Mutual. They did more capital reserves, and they ended up Ooh. buying Bear Stearns as well. When you say capital reserve, again, I mean, people get very confused about what that is. They, they you put mean more Cash. No, 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 cash, not cash. Just capital is up not equity. Capital is not cash. It's on the other side of the balance sheet. Capital is about how you fund. It's mm-hmm. not cash reserve. Okay, so it's it, that's really important. It's not a so pile let's, of cash. Let's delve into that. It's let's delve into that because that's very, very confusing. To this day, you can find people saying set aside cash. That's not what capital is about. Capital is about obviously there is the measurements of it at a given point of time, but. When you when you take a snapshot and you say talk about capital ratios or risk weighted capital ratios or all of that, they are entirely on the funding side. So you got your assets, whatever they are, they have some risk and whatever, mm-hmm. however you put numbers on the on that mm-hmm. through accounting or and what's allowed and not allowed and all of that is like a big can of worms actually. <laughs> but you know, a netting of derivatives and all of that. But then the question is, how do you fund those assets? Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how much gets funded by making promises to investors by debt? Any kind, collateral, non-collateral. Now, deposits are very unique because deposits are unsecured debt to the bank. But to, the, to the depositors. To the depositors. The they right. don't have collateral. Right. Okay? So it's the FDIC that's holding the bag there. Mm-hmm. Now, does the FDIC even know how much risk they're bearing when all the assets are so encumbered that they're all pledged as collateral? Do they? Because one no, they would don't. assume they... Now, no, I they have don't. a very vivid recollection uh, during the financial crisis of the FDIC talking about their reserves dropping from 90 to 60 to I think it dropped as low as $40 billion. And hey, if we get a bunch more disasters, we're not going to be able to cover the depositors. Exactly, because they stopped charging. Also, because there were no defaults before the crisis, Mm -hmm. they stopped charging deposit insurance. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of bank failures, not the big ones, except for Lehman, but Lehman wasn't an FDIC-insured bank. And so, but when other banks, small banks, started failing, what do they... What can the FDIC do in general? Well, they can go back to the large banks and just assess them more because they have no way, and I can assert this to you, no good way to risk adjust their their deposit insurance fees. They're supposed to be self-financing the FDIC through fees, but, you know, they really uh, are taking a huge leap for for insuring what by now must be like, I don't know, 13 trillion dollars and more will come if there were tremors because money moves back in deposits from money market funds and all of that from uninsured money market to insured exactly and so the fdic which is a seize for corporation is is totally backed by the government however in practice they can they have a, a, a line to treasury for i think 500 billion or something but if should something actually happen, so we're all on trust with this system. They tell us, don't run, don't rush, your money is safe. And right. I trust that. No bank that. runs, people. No yeah. bank runs. So, so we solve so the problem. You, when you say that they stop charging fees, I've been under the impression that the banks that have that nice little logo, the emblem, FDIC yeah. insured, aren't those banks paying some small Usually percentage of, of the Usually they do. And basically, I once asked a 40-year 
veteran of banking in all the biggest banks, you know, through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, who was basically came out of retirement to be in a private equity firm that was buying distressed banks from the FDIC. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, oh, not you're looking at the big banks. Let me tell you what goes on in the small banks. And then I asked him the following simple question, because there are thousands of small banks in this right. country. I said, what's the business model of a small bank? And the answer, the answer was three words. The business model, in yeah. other words, the positive net present value of the bank. He said, subsidize deposit insurance. Subsidize That's deposit insurance. That's it. In other words, their entire funding. So what they do on the asset side, anybody can do. Zero NPV, commercial real estate, right. whatever. And how they fund is where, they, where they're privileged. Now, what happens, my model of banking, you know, safety, basic safety nets, is that the big banks may well be overpaying for the deposit insurance part mm-hmm. to the FDIC. And, and the FDIC, and they pass on some subsidies down to the small banks so they keep happened. happy enough. Uh-huh. And because the big banks have implicit guarantees that are priceless right. because they have access to the Fed. And that is worth a ton. In the financial crisis, let's remember, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley became bank holding companies. Right. Previously, now, they were brokerage firms, not They banks. were investment banks, right. regulated by the SEC, which, uh, which also Lehman was. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the commercial banks, so Citibank within Citigroup, were regulated, among others, by the FDIC. And the FDIC had Sheila Baer, and Sheila Baer refused to implement this Basel II that had fancy schmancy risk weights, mm-hmm. manipulable uh, ways, model-based ways to, uh, to, to allow the banks to tell us how risky they are and therefore determine their equity requirements. In other words, mislead regulators And in there is research fashion. that showed that banks in Germany that were allowed to use this advanced approach to this, you know, fancy scientific approach uh-huh. to regulation were, you know, misrepresenting their own risk and making more loans with less risk weights, in other words, inappropriately low risk uh, weights. Just that and much the, more leverage. And, and the, yes. And, of course, the epitome of of the failure of this regulation is assets that had zero risk weights but were risky, like AAA-rated security, like Greek government Mm-hmm. Lending to Greek government in Europe. I mean, the banks in Europe basically fed this, you know, subprime lending to, to, to the Greek government. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid- to large-sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business, demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. 
the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Why should Greece pay more in interest rates than uh, another country like Germany? That doesn't make any... Well, they, uh, they paid a teeny sliver... But the French banks just went and lent them a ton. And when they couldn't pay, the European Union and all these other countries and the regulators that who allowed these banks to make mm-hmm. these reckless loans, who had just bailed out these banks from investing in our real estate bubble, right. uh, couldn't admit to their citizens that they would bail out their banks again if Greece default. So that they blame all the things on the lazy Greeks. And right. they kept bailing out Greece so Greece could pay the banks until the banks got out. So that was the zero risk rate for sovereign lending in Europe. And it's just one example of how r- awful, awful the regulation was pre-crisis. And then you tell me that, oh, they recapitalized and did all of that. I'm not so impressed. Yes, you know, first of all, Bank of America and City were zombies coming right. out of the crisis, despite multiple city bailouts for sure, of City. Bank America, both not of them, much better. by Alman Honor and Zombie Banks. I mean, right. I believe that they were the examples where, if you wanted to have this systemic resolution through the FDIC, we could have tried it in a you know not in a crisis. Meaning, put them into a prepackaged yeah. bank. Show me that it works. And, Show and me that it works. It uh, you know, outside the crisis where everybody's failing. You know, I was on this FDIC systemic resolution advisory committee, which part of Dodd Frank was saying, oh, if Lehman Brothers was sent to the FDIC for resolution because FDIC knows so well how to do the small bank resolution, just come over the weekend, take over a small bank, and the people don't even know. Because they're the same, because Lehman Brothers... Exactly. Had, you so know, Lehman you, Brothers had Repo 105, where they were moving all of this risk Thousands order, of subsidiaries. Right. Just just bi- hundreds of billions of dollars and misrepresenting do you their know, books to, yep. their, to the regulators and to the investors. Do you know that the Lehman bankruptcy is not even over yet? Every year yeah, I go back and check. On. Still right. going it's still on. Ongoing. So this this is how unresolvable these. Now, in the first, to be fair, it was only fifteen years ago. So, you and know. it was a, a small, it was a small one by comparison. I mean, this was the biggest bankruptcy at the time, but right. they were they were a fraction of J.P. Morgan Chase or Citi or right. all of these that they tell you now can fail. 
with without and they have them do living with and all kind of stupid things no way no because we don't even if they did it would just be incredibly exactly so i'm not even blaming for bailing out i am blaming for not for not doing basic prevention so so that raises a really interesting point you you mentioned the french banks and the lazy greeks when you offer people free money or dramatically discounted money we shouldn't blame the greeks who took, hey, this is a great deal. We're going to take this. You have to look at the banks that lent it to them exactly. and said, why are these banks being so irresponsible and reckless to make such cheap loans to Under the eyes of their regulators. Yeah. Under the eyes of their regulators. So the regulators are not being called to why they allowed these loans to be made for to, by too big to fail you know, French and German banks. Right. French banks had in 2010... Forty percent of Greek bond, government bonds. That's amazing. Yes, and, the, and 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 Greece only did a little bit of restructuring after the banks pretty much got out, left the troika creditors to be a bailout fund of European nations, mm-hmm. ECB and IMF. Those were the troika. Now, why did IMF invest? Oh, because IMF was led Stability. by some French. Right. No, because IMF should not have intervened in a European, uh, inter-European right. thing. You know, Europe had enough to be able to resolve this. They just didn't want to. So IMF being led by, you know, French people, uh, huh. you know, Dominique Klaus Kahn, and then, by, then later by Lagarde, who had to deal with it right. later in 2015, when they were kind of the adult in the room, if you want to call so, it. So let's draw a parallel. The, the French banks and the, and the yeah. Greek borrowers, there it's were a lot prime. of people criticizing in the 2000s the U.S. homeowners who were taking HELOCs and refinancing and taking loans And I looked at it as it's not the responsibility of the consumers when when an institution like a a large bank says, we're going to loan you money and we're not going to charge you interest for three years and then it'll reset, but don't worry about it. The individual consumer doesn't understand that. Wait, free cash? Where do I sign? It's the banks and their regulations. It's the lady in the hot tub in the big short saying she's got five houses. You know, that's right. uh, You know exactly. So, so the question is, you know, how? uh, No, exactly. So the that's why I used subprime to kind of as a parallel. Yes. So reckless loans were made to people who couldn't pay, liars' loans, who mm-hmm. were clearly couldn't pay because of the commissions of the mortgage, uh, you know, uh, the uh, sellers, was the whole structure. And you still had the Fed assuring us everything was fine there. And you had a system incredibly levered and interconnected, mm-hmm. create through all these contagion mechanisms that we explain in the book, uh, a perfect storm from a small decline in housing prices. I mean, this should the the the, the, the correction, the price correction itself was you know much smaller than than uh, elevated than, than like internet bubble burst, right? You know, which wiped out a lot of you know paper wealth. Right. And, and uh, to put some numbers on that, the internet peak to trough was about eighty one percent decline in the Nasdaq uh, comp, whereas I think houses fell about thirty two percent. Some sector, some areas, and then there were some defaults. Okay, but I mean the amounts were trivial, really. And how do they create a global financial crisis from a little housing, you know, bubble burst in the U.S.? Securitization. Exactly. Spread it through everything. And 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 super duper triple securitization that are side bets basically uh, on 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 the mortgages and only the you know the big short they made money. 
quite amazing. One of your research pieces really caught my eye. I, I love this title, Is the Internet Broken? Tell us about it. That was actually the title of a course that I taught with uh, one of the producers of uh, HBO Silicon Valley. Which we'll talk more about later. Which but I, yeah, which I got to be involved in in the last season only. Uh, and and, and, and therefore show. it was, you know, it was one of, the, one of the ones I streamed, kind of had to binge stream uh, sort of to see also the, the season I ended up at also being a, a, a cameo in the last, last show with mm-hmm. Middle Ditch, the whole thing, and being there in the Stanford graduation and decorating his office and all that stuff. Uh, anyway, banking is super regulated but poorly regulated mm-hmm. but it's like born kind of born tied at the hip with the with the state with mm-hmm. the government because of central banks because of you know so they're just because they're about money they're kind of intertwined with government in right. ways that not everybody understands because they're still private corporations but they are super duper connected and just to put a little context about that in the in the first I don't know century of American history, they weren't. They were completely independent, and they failed with right. shocking regulations. Because they were all because we had regulations that also prevented them from from diversifying. So they were very subject to local, right. you know, calamities, and they just kept failing. And their privately issued money was good as long as it was good, and then it wasn't. So then we decided to have a currency and the whole history of banking, etc., until we got to have, you know, national banks and these mammoth banks that consolidated and consolidated, and, 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 and still thousands of other, of other banks. So just mm-hmm. a bloated, huge system. But anyway, so I was basically... I've seen banking since I started looking at it in 2009-10 and then becoming involved in that, consumed with that, lobbying for policy, you know, how so, I get so to be. So how did you go from banking to technology and so, the internet? So here's what happened. So then it's sort of 2015, I'm kind of, I've already spent like literally Way five years <laughs> of my life full time on banking where I just came to look, you know, and, and here I was, you know, just... Just and, and it's just kind of, you know, it's a bit sickening to kind of be in that environment. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm in Silicon Valley. And now at that point, there was already the first round of what's called tech lash. You know, that was Cambridge tech Analytica. Right. That was, Cam- you know, that was when all these tech companies stopped being, you know, the ones we love the most. And we started being a little bit suspicious. You started having the people saying it's addictive. And, you know, that was the first round, not Francis mm-hmm. Hogan, which is more, the re- you know, the more recent after, you know, the 2020 election or whatever. But this was kind of after 2016, you know, and into 17. So um, I became curious about this sector as a sector, just to, because I come from, my original interest was in corporate governance generally. Corporations run on behalf of shareholders and what's the implication, mm-hmm. which in banking I saw were disastrous, you know, uh, because they could get away with all the stuff they got away with, which was extremely inefficient and, and included all kinds of bad policies, tax subsidies of debt, all kinds of things that I saw no reason for and just somehow stuck. Bad bankruptcy is, is codes. Is technology any better? Well, so I wanted to check. So I'm like, here is a sector that has an a, sort of an origin that's completely different. In, in other words, born free. Born free in the sense that, you know, they got started in the private sector. A lot of the, uh, even the innovations, the things that, that are wonderful that we take for granted, the fact that our email goes for free, that all of a sudden we have all these, all these communication technologies. And let's 
remember, though, that the internet itself started with, you know, with the government, started with DARPA, DARPA and all of that. Same but, with semiconductors, began with NASA. Right, exactly. So and, let's remember that, that the government got it sort of started. And then obviously there were a lot of innovations. There was a mouse and there was, the, of course, the browser, the first search engines, all of that in, in the 90s. So it's a very young sector, uh, the, the internet. And now we're all digital, now all the way to mobile. So first it's desktops and internet. When I sort of, in the 80s, uh, we were writing emails in the 80s already, but it was, then there was laptop and then there was mobile. And so this whole move to, you know, we got our digital everywhere and we're so connected in the World Wide Web, which was pretty recent innovation, sort of, you know, 2000, early 2000s, um, was fascinating to me in terms of how it interacts or not with with government because people were beginning to think something's wrong with it. You know, privacy issues, you know, net neutrality. I mean, there were all these topics. I had no clue what the policy was. Mm-hmm. I ended up taking a dip into banking regulation. And now, what is there any? What is the regulation? How is it different from telephone? How is it different from newspaper? How is it different from TV? You know, what what sector does it disrupt? So, okay. so let me jump in and ask a question about that. Section 230 yep. is a big regulation yep. that tech companies get to use to say, we're not a media company yep. and we're not responsible yep. for misinformation. Yep. We're a platform. Yep. Tell us about Section 230 and what we should know Yeah, so I didn't know about Section 230 until I started delving into this. Section 230, what is it? There's a whole book about the 19 words that changed the internet. And they are? And they are, the government cannot, you know, regulate, uh, you know, cannot tell these companies they're immune from any litigation on content. Now, preceding this, there were a lot of lawsuits that were targeted at companies that actually tried to moderate content like CompuStat mm-hmm. etc so you you had you had you had these servers these platforms and the ones that uh claim to do some moderation like to keep it you know family friendly or this or that were getting sued for content that was left up, you know, some enemy of mine posted something mm-hmm. that, you know, that I was, I know, related to Columbine or some nude pictures of me or whatever. And they constantly had to deal with with being sued. And so they wanted, uh, uh, but the government, so there was this sort of a bargain made with them that we will give you immunity from lawsuits. And the idea was that it would enable you to moderate. In other words, you're a platform, not a creator of original right, media Right, because people just post. Okay, so you're not responsible for that content. But, of course, then comes the slippery slope, which is news feed, which is the data gathering that happens, you know, that, that you know, that, that Facebook, for example, and, and collects. Then, and then ultimately, misinformation and disinformation. Exactly. Are these companies being responsible members of society or are they hiding behind 230? How do you, how do you well, take they, that apart? They, they're obviously for profit. I mean, when Google started, I, you know, in, in that class, we dug into it. When Google started, the creators of Google were at Stanford right. uh, and they said at the time, they didn't like advertisements. They thought search should be run as a nonprofit in the academic domain. 
And yeah. uh, Google started with a Stanford Google search and then a web search. So it, it started right at Stanford, just like, you know, Facebook was, was for, you know, for college students to meet right. people. And so then, you know, Internet Bubble burst and they uh, wanted to, you know, get funding and go public and all kinds of things like that. And then Famously, investors... Yahoo tried to buy them for a million dollars. And they said, let us think about it. And it didn't, the deal never went down. And it turned out to be quite financially remunerative to them. To the Google, yes. And so then they have the venture capitalists and they have the the people breathing down their necks to produce. uh, And all of a sudden, all their nice words about how they're against advertisers. Then they were sort of, you know, uh, they- That was then. That was then. And then they found more and more and more ways to monetize the the predictiveness of where people are going and sell that to advertisers and targeted ad and all of that. By then also destroying newspapers, especially local newspapers, and therefore becoming, and then of course the way they, they, curate. So now you're going to say, I didn't create this content. It's not my content. You know, I will have some filters to remove, you know, naked people or whatever else. And, um, but, but now I'm going to, I'm going to curate a newsfeed to you that I think is what you want to see. Now, maybe what you want to see is the things that, you know, you're going to get aroused by, uh, that create engagement, which became sort of the mantra for what they were looking for mm-hmm. is, to get you to spend more time and therefore give them more information. So you kind of trace the business models and you step back and ask, well, how is that working out for us? <laughs> and uh, and this surveillance capitalism, what, what Zubov calls, et cetera, uh, you know, was beginning to not, not work very well already in 2017, 18. And, and the Silicon Valley HBO series in the last season was sort of seeing that trend and they wanted to kind of capture the fact that all of a sudden Zuckerberg is in front of, you know, of congressional committees and and the, the sort of beginning rumbling about what's going on there. So, so let's break this down to a couple of different topics because there's a lot of things going on, especially when we're talking about Google and Facebook. So hold aside local newspapers and others that were hurt by Google, Facebook, Craigslist, eBay, go down all the list of things that they used to generate right. uh, revenue from. And uh, a lot, Zillow is another one. Uh, think of all the ad revenue streams yep. for, now it's pretty much subscription and yep. a little bit of advertising. Yep. Um, but let's talk about some of the big things you, you've brought up. Um, one is misinformation. The The other is the engagement that the algorithms are driving outrage, not information, what are the responsibilities of, of these companies and what are the responsibilities of regulators to, to look over these companies and say, are, are they doing a good job or are they causing societal damage? So I delved deeply into it, and I'll give you just the brief answers. First of all, you know, there is some debate about whether, you know, why our ecosystem of, of sort of just engagement, you know, with each other has gotten so toxic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can, you know, it doesn't, it's not all from the internet. I mean, you can talk about, you know, cable television and, you know, sure. Rush Limbo and, and Fox News or whatever, whoever is your, your you know, uh, a channel that you think is... Um, America's News Network, uh, Newsmax. The, so some the, of it is the TV. Far, the extremists have really gotten right. extreme. 
So, so exactly. So we had a certain polarization with all the proliferation of, 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 of media outlets and people choosing, you know, their silos. So it's no longer the evening news, right. you know, that gives you the truth anymore. Everybody has their own truth. And the Internet is just one place where that happens. Now, the problem with, uh, with the Internet, and I think what, what needs to happen. So first of all, this country has a First Amendment, which means that the government can't do much. Can't stop you from criticizing the government or engaging in political speech. There are areas that can be restricted. But very Everything, little. Well, so yeah, very little. We're, very we're limited, at the mercy right. of these private right. companies. Now, the, what we can do and what we can regulate is just, first of all, what happens behind you know, what is actually going on? What are people seeing? Let's see. Let's. You have researchers unable to access the data to even know how much misinformation. What are people reading? I mean, you don't have, you know, in, 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 even in. Because they're private companies. Yes, because Google, they don't release Facebook, it, because they Twitter. do not, they are not forced to disclose relevant information to. To the public, to researchers, anonymized and all, but just so we can understand what their impact and is that on our like, lives. That seems like a pretty fair trade for yeah. the government to say, we're going to continue giving you Section 238, 230 protections, but in order to qualify, you have to release all this data. A to lot us. of data is the absolute starting point mm-hmm. of, of that. That seems like a fair amendment to. Keeping all these nuisance yeah, so there are few, off their back. There are people more involved in that policy debate. I basically became conversant enough, at least to teach a course. I haven't done a lot of writing on it. I basically took it into my examples of two sectors, banking and the internet, that sort of seem to have a, a, some kind of a clash with democracy, basically. Be, because of the, the need for government exemptions and regulation, and support in some way versus just the Wild West, unfettered. Because, because you know, the government is always there. It's what it does and what it doesn't do for all sectors. It's the rules of the game mm-hmm. for the economy. And they affect all companies. That's labor law, environmental laws, you know, all kinds of consumer protection laws, you know, and some specific regulations, you know. Airline regulation or, you know, in other words, the rules, the, the, the speed limits, the, the rules of the road for for companies and for people. OK, mm-hmm. you know, are you allowed to do mandatory arbitration or not? You know, th- there's just thousands of things that were the law in general, not specialized to a sector, but just the laws that exist, anti-discrimination or you name it. I mean, Facebook got in, in trouble for allowing people to, to, to mark race as, 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 a, as a thing in, in, and put a housing ads in front of people from certain race. That was a that was a against. Because uh, it's supposed to be race blind. Yeah, and, so they and, got a, a, against huh, uh, basic civil rights law. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah, so they have to interact with all laws. They have to obey all laws. Minimum wage, you know, all kinds of laws. Right. And so now that's my current interest, which is the corporation as a legal person. Mm-hmm. They are not a set of assets owned by shareholders. They are a separate thing. Right, mm-hmm. Twitter is a thing. They have a board. They have shareholders. They have various stakeholders. Everybody has some claim or some control in some cases. How do they? How does a corporation, as a legal person, interact with the rule of law in general? They have rights. They have responsibilities. 
who's home to get more and more rights. They send the lawyers to get more and more rights in the courts. Mm-hmm. Political speech rights, religious rights, you know, they get more and more rights in the courts. And responsibilities, there's kind of nobody home when you come for, you know, you caused harm, when you come for, say, Boeing or Purdue or, you know, PG&E or all these companies, you know, that's what I'm interested in now. A corporation living in a legal environment, who are they? What if they harm? What happens? What well, can we do? Well, you name some companies that have run afoul of the government because they engaged in some pretty bad and sometimes reckless or even illegal activity. So you mentioned Boeing. Um, they didn't do a great job with their seven... 37 Max. Right. That that was yep. problematic. They took a bunch of shortcuts. Arguably, they yep. did not follow their own internal procedures. Well, they were competing with Airbus. Right. Um, you mentioned Purdue engaged in all sorts of behavior where it was pretty clear, hey, we can't ship this much. No, um, ship, that, that was all the enablers around them, the McKesson and all the pharmacies and all of that. But, you know, Purdue but they and know other, internally... They, this is a town of 300 people. Why are they getting right. 8,000 pills a month? They were marketing it through the doctors mm-hmm. and to the public using false claims deceptive, and misleading deceptive, deceptive marketing. Right. Now, what happened? No individual in Purdue was, you know, the three the were criminally charged. a couple of, of libraries, though, so you got that. That's, yeah. that's a problem. But, yeah, but, you know, the Sacklers took away a whole bunch of money. It's a billions, private company. Billions, and right. then they sought release from the bankruptcy of Purdue, not themselves. Right. Released from all civil liabilities, which a court above bankruptcy court, you know, struck down. And now where are we? We're nowhere. It's a mess. That company, you know, cannot possibly make up for all the harm they caused. And voila, the Sackler's name is obviously not as prestigious as it used to be. There should be some clawback of the billions of dollars that were extracted from the company. This is like fraudulent conveyance. I mean, you know, in bankruptcy, usually you say you took money out, you diverted money, you know, knowing that this thing is going to collapse. In bankruptcy, right. So ahead of bankruptcy, and they can look back. And you supposed to be acting on behalf of the of the. Well, creditors. but they were the owners. I mean, so exactly. So the creditors can, but now the creditors of Purdue are, you know, mostly victims and insurance right. companies and the government. And, you know, so in the bankruptcy court are all these tort victims, including people whose family members died, people who are addicted, you know, Medicare, all the insurance companies that had to pay, all the municipalities, all the states. I mean, you got claimants from here to and and department of justice comes and says well you you call it a medicare fraud you know we want billions of dollars who gets the little pie that well that's for the judge to assess but you can't assess those damages without having access to the capital the money they said we'll throw in four billion dollars and give us a release and we're out of here and and where is that right now it's I it it's nowhere. I mean, the bankruptcy court is back to they had a sort of a, an agreement, and it was thrown out, which right. is very rare. And that tells uh, you how egregious the behavior was. It's really rare. You have to really go out of your way to mess up for a bankruptcy court to say that's no. It that's wasn't the bankruptcy far. court. The, the court they chose the they chose a particular bankruptcy court. A particular right. bankruptcy judge. Little this forum is shopping, shopping. Sure. exactly forum shopping, and then that judge was favorable to these uh, uh, to the master Sacklers. agreement, right. and and gave them that. And the other court said that the, doesn't make sense. The appellate sense. court said no good. And so now it got the bankruptcy agreement is back at the bankruptcy court. And, uh, and is the it victims, the same judge by the way, or is it a different court? I'm not sure, but 
the victims anyway were publishing saying, well, I wasn't going to get very much. Maybe I was going to get, you know, $3,000 or $1,000. And now I may not get anything. Right. So they were even, they signed because there was so little they were going to get anyway. Uh, So it's all kind of pathetic. See, to me, when it's so little, I say full speed ahead, litigate it, and we'll let a jury Well, the question is, so, so here's the question for the victims. You know, can they actually go after the Sacklers? The Sacklers' money is abroad. How can you actually find it? This is like the discussion still, we have today. Because you could track that down and claw it back. If, you, well, if it goes from the U.S. bank to overseas. It's complicated. I mean, that's like how we now say, well, you know, can Delaware, you know, Chancery Court make Elon Musk, you know, buy Twitter? It's like, okay, the court can decide, but th- what muscle does the court even have? Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I want to talk about Elon Musk and Twitter because the question becomes, are, are contracts enforceable? When, when someone says, can they make him do this? I don't know. His assets are in the United States. He signed a binding agreement. It's up to the court to dis- to either enforce that agreement. 
you know how these things happen in the 11th hour there'll yeah. be a deal cut yeah. because no one wants to take a risk of finding that out well the question is what actual you know literal power does that Delaware court have uh you know on Elon Musk he's known for you know snubbing his nose at the rules for saying law. the rules don't right. apply to me and so uh, far they have mocking but, SEC yeah and you know, making a joke out of SEC uh, whatever if the Delaware courts want to continue people incorporating in Delaware and enforcing contract law then they have to really think about how they're going to enforce yeah. this because if he walks away scot-free from this then Delaware just lost a well, giant source of Yeah, oil. I mean, you know, among my, the books, there's a, a book called What's the Matter with Delaware? Right. And, uh, and so that's quite, I mean, the fact, you know, if you start going back to the origins of incorporation and why we even have corporate law in the right. state and why Delaware, you know, is sort of the, the, the state that matters to the whole world right. on, an, on corporate law, that's, that's the only business model it has for the state is these fees you can become a corporation 10 minutes if you right. if you pay just not that very much without even identifying yourself and that's like a whole other can of worms why is the US so slow in 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 you know basic basic transparencies that you have more transparency in China you know, David Barboza was able to track the wealth of the of top Chinese people through chains of corporate ownerships because for a little bit of money, you can find out the actual beneficial owners of every private corporation. And if that's another corporation, they, you can pay a little bit more and pay and f- until you get to a person. Not right. in the U.S. In the U.S., you know, because Delaware likes it and because other states that compete with Delaware like it and because the legal profession likes it, we somehow sign on all kinds of agreements uh, that are sort of, you know, for transparency after all the scandals, the Pandora paper, the, right. the, the Panama paper, and all of that. And then, and we're the laggards in the world. So right now, finally, because of sanctions on, on Ukraine, et cetera, we've, we have a law going through the Enablers Act. And that is expansion of the bank secrecy law, which is basically your know your customers. But we had, you know, FinCEN, uh, you know, the, the Department in Treasury that gets all these suspicious activity report, mm-hmm. you know, leak. And we saw what happens to all these banks that file suspicious activity report and still process the transaction, and right. nobody has enough resources in in, the, in, in Treasury well, they file to the go report over. That lets them do the transaction, yeah. Yeah. and uh, the money laundering is just pervasive. So dirty money. When we talk about jurisdictions taking dirty money, you know, the it's US a competition is, between is U.S. Also. and U.K. You have American kleptocracy on one hand. You have you know Butler to the world and all kinds of other uh, books, Moneyland and London, and, yep. and kleptocracy, um, kleptomania. Standard saying that UK is the winner on this. <laughs> you know, which one is more uh, of a home to dirty money? Butler to the world is like, you know, we, we're no longer an empire, but we'll solve You want something hidden? You want something taken care we'll of? The butler will take care of it. Huh. Quite, quite fascinating. So we already talked about borrowing and how that magnifies risk. Tell us some of the dark side of borrowing and, and what we should be doing about that. So... The use of debt to fund things, meaning I give you money, then I get an IOU from you, okay, mm-hmm. uh, is pervasive throughout the economy. I mean, it's sort of an, a particular contract that, that gets signed all the time, uh, and a lot happens by using debt funding, okay? And we seem to encourage it unnecessarily 
for buying houses or for funding corporations against other forms of funding. Well, when you say for buying housing, how else can you buy a house? Well, it depends if you want to subsidize it or not. In this country, we subsidize home ownership only if you borrow through taxes. So we don't need we don't need that deduction. That deduction has got it's doing nothing good. If you want to subsidize home ownership, choose the people you want to subsidize. And then, for example, you can give them a little tax credit for their down payment. So in other words, instead of making the interest you pay on your mortgage deductible, you can make the down payment deductible and that would encourage for example, more home ownership amongst yeah, but, uh, but specific people, the not the rich people. Because right now, housing subsidies, mm-hmm. even with poor people, specific housing subsidies and vouchers that nobody takes and all of that, right. the most of the subsidies for housing go to rich people. Upper I mean, that makes class, no sense. Yeah. The more, the bigger the house, the bigger the deduction. It's a regressive. Now it's been capped in a lot of places. It's been capped, but it should be canceled. And many countries don't have it now. For corporations across the world, the historical mistake was made to allow tax deductibility of interest, where you know debt funding is a funding expense, not a business expense, should not be considered a business expense. We should not favor debt over equity funding for corporations because they can always have access to their own profits and to investors because they- That's global? That's global, that's pretty global. Some countries tried to fix that, so there are some papers about that tax bias. Who does it better? Well, I think that, you know, I think Belgium's tried to have some, uh, there were other countries that were giving you know, something to dividends and try to fix that bias, the tax mm-hmm. bias. It is well known that the tax bias uh, uh, of debt over equity is is a distortion in the economy. The economist had uh, periodically starts, and even Bloomberg here, Bloomberg View, uh, screams every so often to stop that. Uh, and somehow nobody's listening. So it's just this persistent distortion that we never fix. In the United States, the bias towards debt over equity is distorting capital structures in, in yeah, corporate America? because debt has a dark side, precisely for that reason. There, the dark side of debt, I mean, I already mentioned the sort of addictiveness of debt at mm-hmm. high levels, okay, which is especially true if for banking because they are heavily indebted fundamentally and because they have all the safety nets that make their creditors more passive, um, and that allow them to ratchet up the debt. So I have a, a, a theory paper that I learned a lot from called Leverage Ratchet mm-hmm. uh, Effect, and Journal of Finance 2018. Anyway, so the, what's the dark side? You know, when I teach this, and I also teach undergraduates, and uh, by the way, I'm, I'm not even teaching finance and economics anymore. I'm teaching so interdisciplinary that it's it's listed in political science, and it sort of has no a lot of law. It's, it's very out of silo. It's very, very cross-disciplinary. Um, so I took my class out of the finance listing. It's kind of a, a general kind of class. It's called power in finance or business and government, power and engagement, those kinds of courses where I start mm-hmm. with like human rights and I talk about corruption and all kinds of words that usually are not to be heard in a business school. But anyway, there. Uh, back to the dark side of borrowing, uh, of debt. Um, so, you know, as long as you keep your promise, everybody's happy, Okay. What if, so, so there are different terminologies that are important to distinguish. There's the 
issue of default. What if you just don't pay? You promise and you don't keep your promise. Now, you know, stuff can happen. You might end up filing for bankruptcy, but bankruptcy is a legal process. So it has to be separated from default. It can happen before default. You know, PG&E filed for bankruptcy, companies filed for bankruptcy without defaulting to seek protection from their creditors, mm-hmm. okay? So it, a bankruptcy is like an, a legal option Pre-empted. that is for, for you know, to, to kind of get from, from all the overhangs of debt that prevent you from breathing, okay? That's more of a, a full res- preemptive restructuring it's, than It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be f- sort of forgiving. Now, for an individual, again, it's like a fresh restart. We're forgiving right. of taking too much debt. But if you use it as a shield, like we discussed the Sacklers, et cetera, or if you start spinning off as subsidiaries, it's going to take off your talcum liability if you're Johnson & Johnson using some two Texas two-step trick or whatever, right. or you're Pfizer and, you know, and they found you guilty of some fraud and you just... Just put not the, fri- Pfizer. Did no, Pfizer yes, get into Pfizer. Yeah, really? yeah. Ask Judge Rakoff about that. Well, uh, and he'll tell <laughs> you the there southern, are recidivists in, in the Southern District. Yeah. There are recidivist corporation. He loves to give the, the example not of Pfizer, Pfizer. Oh, even my. after the, the after the COVID. And right. and he says they would keep coming back. They would be a deferred prosecution. So why are we keep deferring it? And then once <laughs> I insisted they admit guilt, they send the liability the criminal liability to a subsidiary and they fail that subsidiary and go and completely continue. And and does that shield the company from liability? They manage to find tricks to shield from liability all the time or to to just sort of shift the liabilities around kind of in between all the the contracts and the covenants and all of that. So there's a lot of of shielding uh, uh, going on. But in any case, that's if you're clever. If you are an individual or a small business, you know, it's it's harder harder for you to play those games uh, of liability shifting. Anyway, so, you know, the dark side is that you have that your decisions once indebted are very different and potentially very inefficient relative to if you were just doing things on your in your own money versus that that borrowed money and a little bit of your own money because so, so you're going to take excessive that. risk. You're going to gamble for resurrection, take excessive risk. So you're biased in favor of risk, in favor of more boring and against certain boring investments because the benefit from those, the net present value of those, kind of first goes to the creditor because right. you're after. So you might be biased against making a boring business loan if you're a bank because you want to go plain derivative instead. So so you talk about the problem of working with other people's money, meaning uh, whether it's the banks or money. hedge funds or private equity, it doesn't matter. They get to speculate with OPM, keep the gains, right. but if there are losses, it, it goes to right. Yeah. So so how do we how do we deal with that in our financial system? How do we make our system less fragile than it appears to be? The first thing to do is to counter the forces of that intense desire to keep leveraging, which the you know, I sometimes say the more they hate equity, the more I know they have too little of it. Right. You know, it's like their intense hate of it says, I can't live unless you give me cheap debt to keep rolling my, my, my debt. You know, I'll default, terrible things will happen or whatever. So they have always access to funding, especially if you're a too big to fail bank. The creditors will just not think, especially if they lend to you with collateral in short term, that, that they'll be harmed. You know, once they think they are harmed, you know, they'll start running off, etc. So you have fragile funding. The only counter to that is not, you know, clever debt that converts to equity that nobody's going to ever trigger, which because we've seen that, is plain old equity. Your earnings, you know what I mean? You have profits that you pay out. How will the world be harmed? You know, for 
10 years now, the book is almost 10 years old. We've been asking every so often, you know, macroeconomists, all kinds of people who speak in this space, even academics, saying, just tell me one thing as an economist. How will the world, society, be harmed if the banks retain their earnings? They're still their money. Their Warren Buffett never pays. Their shareholders don't get dividends. That's, but, that's they, a... but you put the money to good use. Don't burn it. You know, right. invest it. You know, if you invest in something safe, the risks to the shareholders will go down and they require return accordingly because we know finance, risk and return are intertwined, risk mm-hmm. and required return. Why is Warren Buffett never paying dividends? Because he's investing the money on behalf of his shareholders. Right. So are we not so Warren Buffett himself when he invests Although in he bank? Although he is buying back stock. I know. Well, he... Well, yeah, because that's a more tax advantageous, and so it's all so of profitable. this comes back. You know, it's funny. You keep it keeps circling around. It often comes back to what's most tax advantaged. How have the how regulators you can shift the risk to somebody else? So and how more, have you managed other people's risk? If you can risk? shift the downside risk to somebody and you can get right. the upside, that's the bright side of leverage for those who take it if they can avoid the downside. Right. So the homeowner may or may not, you know, be able to avoid the the the, the downside, but homeowners levered up, took, uh, you know, cash out refinancing and relevered, and basically cash out refinancing. When the housing price, when the house price goes up, is the same as paying dividends when you make right. profit. It's the same. I ask my students, what's the equivalent of cash out refinancing? Bethany McLean wrote, the house is not a credit card, but that was right. the ads. You know, take your take your home on vacation. You know, before the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. So this is like the dividends that the regulators are allowing banks to keep paying, even though they live on pathetically low equity, meaningful equity levels. Now they don't default, so you don't see that they may well be insolvent. We just don't know it because the accounting disclosures don't really show you what's going on. So how should we fix this? What should banks and financial institutions be doing differently? How should we change the tax code and and the regulatory environment? First of all, you have to ease out of that that tax preferences. And, And secondly, you just against what their incentives are. You know, if it's a tax subsidy... It comes out of somewhere. I'm even willing to to settle on the tax bill as an amount of cash that they owe that's a function of, that's the same as right now, except if they didn't lever as much in order to get that same tax bill. In other words, to lower their tax bill. Because it's the fragility of that overhang, the inefficiency of that overhang, that is making the entire system fragile. Uh, because the, in the dynamics of contagion, which we explained, the banking dominoes, you know, one defaults on another, like we're seeing in crypto right now. Right. And and um, and then there's the information contagion where, you know, I'm now worried that this whole sector is going to fail. You know, Lehman fails and the next thing to fall is some other banks in the same business. And that was, by the way, a concern of some people in the Fed, even like Kevin Warsh, uh, after Bear Stearns was bailed out, basically. Well, that's because they all owned they all own the, the same, same thing. crap, right? And they were exposed and so to one another, down, exactly. It, so people talk about Lehman like it's a domino that sent it off. I, I love to describe Lehman Brothers as the first house in the trailer park that the tornado so destroys. I have, I have visuals in my TEDx talk that basically have tall buildings and I color code them red for debt, green for equity, very little. And then the green disappears and they topple on one another. And then there's Uncle Sam kind of trying to trying mm-hmm. to kind of uh, So, so you, it all comes back to insufficient equity yes. relative to way too much debt. Oh yeah, that's, that's just the most obvious thing. That's like the no brainer thing. Mm-hmm. So when you look at it, as I came and looked at it, I'm like, why are we here? There's a simple 
like costless fix. You just rearrange the financial claims in the economy. So where the upside, the people with the upside also bear the downside. That's the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be, you know, privatized gain, socialized losses. Right, it's supposed right. to be, and this is a basic thing, bipartisan and everything. Didn't Dodd-Frank fix some of this or it was reputed to have fixed some of this so, or was it watered down that much? So Dodd-Frank, so let's just be clear on what Dodd-Frank was. Dodd-Frank was a massive law with, you know, a thousand pages. Dodd-Frank gave authority to regulators. Dodd-Frank gave in Title I, told the Fed to solve the too-big-to-fail problem, to do whatever they need for financial stability. And the Fed is still failing to do that. Really? Yes. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At the Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how the Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
So why have the banks been relatively stable for well, the past I mean, decade? Well, just is because it, they don't implode doesn't in- mean they're healthy. <laughs> uh, th- I guess. I guess just because you don't you drop live, dead doesn't mean if you're you, not safe. If you're bloated <laughs> and inefficient and taking up much of more of the economy than we need, uh-huh. because you can, and meanwhile, you know, you, you're paying yourself and all these people all these salaries where we should have a more efficient financial sector, and instead it's so bloated and so profitable, it comes out of somewhere. Right. So, you know, I, to to me, the banking sector is not healthy just because it, it, it exists and profitable. <laughs> right, not it hasn't at all. died doesn't necessarily mean... Yeah, you're, um, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're overweight and unhealthy, but you have the feeding tube, you know what I mean? <laughs> you're like, still whatever, alive, gotcha. Whatever analogy What do you, you think is going to happen? So, not, I'm not going to ask you for a rate forecast or what the Fed's going to do, the era of cheap capital and free money and zero interest rate clearly is coming to an end. Are we? Is the tide going out and we're going to find out who's been swimming naked? In banking, I don't think so. For banks, actually, you know, higher interest rates could be more very spread. profitable. Yeah, right. more spread. So they're actually having tr- some trouble with squeezed, uh, you know, yields. Uh, so so isn't the pushback to that... Hey, they weren't making big spreads on l- lending, and they still managed to not implode. If well, they could survive zero, they should oh, do well but, at two or three percent. But these, but these banks have so much, so many ways to make money. I mean, look uh-huh. at look at you know, look at the COVID. Okay, look at how how they made money through COVID with the supports to everybody. I mean, banks were the vehicle through which we gave PPP loans. Yeah, and what was PPP loan but a windfall for the banks? They were uh, given. Uh, I think they. they they took the money at the quarter percent and were paid one percent. So that's, that's a right. spread right that's there right. on hundreds of billions of dollars. And it was and, and it, it was there riskless. was fees it was and it was riskless. Guaranteed. It was guaranteed and forgiven. Right. And so they took no risk. They did hardly any creditworthiness because we were rushing to give the money out. Right. And and they they were not liable for 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 checking the papers because it was all so rushed. They gave a lot of it to their favorite clients, and then we of, needed to give more of it. There was a lot and of fraud also built into that it. too. And uh, and a lot of companies that shouldn't have it wasn't meant to God, and then the Fed was standing ready and started buying corporate bonds, and that was a huge debt spree for the entire corporate sector, mm-hmm. which again the investment banks benefited from from all this debt party that went on, and so you know it. it it was it was a wonderful life in <laughs> during COVID in the in the banking sector. You know, it's funny you you brought that up because. In the United States, we have a tendency to ask the corporate side to do things that should be government business. So if the whole idea behind PPP was to keep people employed in small and medium businesses, why get the business involved? Why isn't that directly from the government? And and the same thing with healthcare. Why is so much healthcare through businesses instead of directly through some we- government entity Please leave businesses out of it. Do let the government do its responsibility directly with the citizenry. So around at the start of the of the COVID crisis, there were, there was a letter organized. A few hundred academics in law, finance, economics signed it, telling the government before the right around the time of the CARES Act, first one, to not 
give money to corporations mm-hmm. to give it to people who need it so in other and part of it was logistical in this country because you know you basically you have the data in IRS right, and everything course. you on social security everybody you, gets a, a, a w2 payroll exactly. so you you take over security. that's what co- right. governments did in Europe you take over the payroll so this way it's not that their discretion to kind of their goodwill to to right. now they can't hire again in the airlines etc so you You know, they came for bailouts and the airlines are a classic example after having paid every virtually everything in, in dividends right, right before that right and they now would have had plenty client, of money and, if they and were for, a little for airlines more in particular bankruptcy has traditionally worked great right you don't ground the planes you want them everything to fly, keeps flying and right. you just renegotiate some contracts we had plenty of time to do that during the, yeah, the, the crisis the, why are we you know why are we bailing out the investors that just got a huge reward we're not right. like effectively you know at least zeroing them uh, if not you know clawing back some of this money right the old joke about airlines is they haven't been profitable since Kitty Hawk but let's stick with government payments to corporations we saw something very similar in the financial crisis where the banks who were bad lenders were bailed out but really the borrowers didn't see there was some relief yes. but not a lot yes so so there was clearly a huge bias towards bailing out the banks you know forming the runway all of that and you know the person who wrote the most eloquently about this is Neil Borovsky, of course. Mm-hmm. What, uh, uh, be more specific. Neil Borovsky wrote a book about bailout. He was the inspector general of mm-hmm. the TARP, right. the Troubled Asset uh, um, you know, re- Relief of, uh, Program. And um, he was complaining and describing, and other people did too, how little uh, the programs did. I mean, remember, from that, they bailed out AIG, they bailed out the auto manufacturers, right. but homeowners didn't get relief, and it had collateral harm. Uh, so the programs for homeowners were voluntary to the lenders. Now, the loans were securitized, so now, you, you know, there's no lender to negotiate with, and it's much more efficient to renegotiate the loan than to, uh, to foreclose. Instead, you had a massive housing crisis in which there were a lot of foreclosures, a lot of people misplaced, very traumatic experience for a lot of people mm-hmm. whose mortgages should have been restructured, basically. And again, it was the lenders that were doing it, and then the lenders that just didn't choose. I mean, you had, you had in the accounting of, say, Citigroup, you had them not want to, you know, not want to restructure, you know, second mortgages, which were clearly or know what to declare on their accounting, which were clearly a total loss because there were second junior mm-hmm. mortgages uh, even that, as, so but they was, were rescued they were bailed out of those exactly and so they were not even acknowledging their losses I mean you could see this on their book to market I mean you could see that they were exaggerating their books hugely and for for people who not may not remember Neil Borofsky he was the NYU law professor for who while, was yeah. the speaker special the inspector, inspector general, general for the troubled asset and he wrote this talk. book about how they bailed out Wall Street and left Main Street and uh, now he's a, Neil to come on the show yeah he's he, a partner in a law firm and one of the things he did afterwards was Ben Lossky who was the regulator in New York uh, uh, employed him yeah Jenner yes and employed him for a few years he was a full-time monitor of Credit Suisse and Credit Suisse being right. now one of the poster childs. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about reckless banks, <laughs> you know, 
you you had David Emmerich, I think, you know, credit, you know, credit Swiss right now, but Deutsche Bank being the poster child. Right. And, you know. They all seem to be slowly recovering um, from their original on yeah, life you're support a zombie, status. You're right. a zombie and we feed you enough and we give you time and you come out from the dead. 15 years, 10 years, absolutely. Yeah. So if you never can die, you know, you come back. Well, that that's no that's no surprise. And, and they've all essentially come back. So one last piece of research of yours I have to ask about. Uh, it takes a village to maintain a dangerous financial system. Why does it take a village? How many entities so, have to be involved to keep finance dangerous? So I, I will talk a little bit about this. Because this was my kind of uh, my own summary of my experience uh, over the five years in which I really was devoted entirely to this little policy battle uh, where the book is and, and, and writings that we did afterwards were sort of debunking or a whole set of flawed claims, what we call, we call them bankers' new clothes. But it's not just bankers, it's policymakers, it's even academics who say things that fall under the category of uh, fallacious, false, mm-hmm. or then kind of true but Knowingly irrelevant. false or, or just ignorant or both? I don't know what goes on in people's heads. Right. Uh, really oh, don't. I do, and it's I can insane. Say, I can say, you know, this person should know better than utter that nonsense. Sometimes I'm told people whisper in my ear they don't understand and I'm like, wait a minute, bread and butter finance they don't understand. Leverage and risk, risk and return they don't understand. That doesn't make any sense to me. You know, uh, you know, I write, you know, open letter to JP Morgan Chase, you know, reading his letter to shareholders. I write all these different op-eds I just did this for five years straight, including the year and a half in the bunker writing the book. And in 2015, I decided, okay, what happened to me here? Why is it so difficult? And, um, you know, who did I meet along the way who kind of led to this situation that I encountered? And so at the time, in 2015, two movies came out. I was actually in New York for for a, a month or two staying at NYU and uh, and was kind of, you know, in town for various things. There are many stories I can tell you about that period. And uh, the two movies that came out and competed for the Oscar that year mm-hmm. were uh, The Big Short. Mm-hmm. And I came to see it with Adam McKay and some mm-hmm. of, you know, pre-showing because he wanted to see what finance people academics will say to the movie. And later he recorded a session with us because people were asking him what to do. Of course, he finished the book, Why Now now Nobody Goes to Jail, which was kind of, most of what he showed was legal. So it was kind of not the end that Michael Lewis had in the book. Michael Lewis, by the way, in the book, The Big Short, ends by saying, the problem was not that Lehman was allowed to fail. The problem was that Lehman was allowed to succeed first. For as long as it did. Yes. So he he went back to partnerships, moving to limited liability corporations and becoming reckless with other people's money. But anyway, so I was asked to write an essay for a book that was edited by a philosopher that was called Just Financial Market, Finance in a Just Society. So it was about justice. Mm -hmm. And so I had to connect what I've seen in finance in the banking area to some sense of justice, of who inflicts injustice. Mm -hmm. And so... And so the way in which people cause harm is sort of by doing and by not doing, is by being willfully blind by all these terms from psychology about how you can cause harm and sleep overnight. You know, so it was basically, I started asking, why has it been hard to get through with my simple message? Uh, Who were all the people who were 
trying to be on the other side of this. So you start with the bankers, they benefit, you, you know, you then go to all the different private sector gatekeepers, mm-hmm. the accountants, the credit rating agencies, you know, consulting companies that, you know, a lot of people that want the regulation to be very complicated because it creates a lot of jobs, you know, doing stress tests right. and all kinds of fancy things, even if they're not really good. On and on, the people who are enabling the situation. So the key word is enablers, okay? Now the title came from the movie Spotlight, which was the other movie that came out. Mm -hmm. Spotlight was a movie about sexual harassment in the church, Catholic church. And it was about journalists in Boston uncovering Uh, how mm -hmm. sexual uh, harassment in the church persisted and how once they investigated the, 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 the abusers moving and around the system, to a different they church, right. were able to see the problem as much more systemic than, mm-hmm. than the one, uh, one at a time little story. And that's the parallel in the between story, the two. In the movie Spotlight, the lawyer to some of the victims who, of course, even if there was a settlement, they were told to shut up. Mm-hmm. Just like a lot of settlements that I've been looking NDAs, at, NDAs, sure, and all the NDAs. The lawyer says to the journalist, "If it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a village to abuse a child." Hmm. Quite, quite amazing. Yes, and it takes a village to raise a child. Is a title of Hillary? Is an African saying that Hillary Clinton adopted for a title of her book? Takes a village to abuse a child is all the enablers who look away, all the people who kind of make the situation a, a wrong persist. And, you know, go to all kinds of things. Go to Weinstein, go to a lot of wrongdoings that persist. They were enablers along the way. So I wanted to see the enablers in my world in which maybe not even crimes were committed, but there were sort of legal deceptions. Uh, There was a, a, you know, capturing of the regulators. There was sort of, you know, capturing of the politicians. There was confusing the politicians. There was confusing the public. Who all did that? And so I went all the way to academics, all the way to people whose job is to to the regulators and their narratives, and basically said, here is what they're saying, and here is why it's flawed and wrong and misleading, and this this it enables this system to persist. At the same time, there was a book by a Dutch journalist who did uh, uh, called Yoris something called Swimming with Sharks. Uh-huh. It was about banking culture, and all he did was he interviewed a bunch of people in the city of London about their jobs anonymously. And he was just trying to map out how people felt about their jobs and who's getting paid and who's getting fired and, 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 and whether they think it's fair relative to their high school friends or whatever. And he became so alarmed with the financial system that he started having these analogies of an empty cockpit. You know, oh, my God, you know, all these nobody's people, nobody switch, is taking. Right? No I told wheel. him, we took a walk in London along the river, and I said, you know what? It's worse. I mean, he's an anthropologist by training. I come from the ivory tower and finance down to the ground, and we meet in the same place. This is crazy, okay? And I said to him, it's worse than a, 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 you know, an empty cockpit. He has a nightmare where he walks in the cockpit and it's empty. I said, you know what? The pilots of the airplane are paid to do flips and to fly low, and they have their own parachutes, so they don't care about the passengers. So it's, it's, it's kind of worse. The people who control this system are benefit from its fragility. And so you can't fix it until you, you know, that's what the book tries to do is educate the public. So right now it's going to be 10 years since the book in February 2023 will be 10 years. And we're considering right now republishing this book 
2023 with a sort of one epilogue chapter, maybe a preface, explaining how the book still relevant to COVID bailouts, to crypto, which we didn't get to discuss. We're going to talk about that in a okay, minute. Okay, I'm happy to talk about it. And, uh, and to the fraying of democracies. So, so before we get to my favorite questions, I, I have to ask you my curveball question, which is you're an advisor to HBO Silicon Valley, a show I just adored. <laughs> Tell us about that experience. How did they find you? other than the fact that you're at Stanford, and, and what would you do for them? So how they found me was that they originally found my neighbor, who's an electrical engineering professor, uh-huh. and uh, he is, uh, his last name is Weissman, so he is the one after which the Weissman score, uh, compression score, is. Oh, really? And, uh, on the show, and they created the show. this new And this was compression from some algorithm. research because the, this co-producer, Jonathan Dutton, um, was was sort of scouting the Silicon Valley to kind of find a believable story to capture the spirit of, uh-huh. of Silicon Valley. And he, you know, the looking for storylines and concepts. And then he came across this. And then the, this professor and a couple other professors from computer science and engineering helped the show be as believable as it as it was. Mm-hmm. Now, as it went through, and it was all out there in the garage and all this stuff, uh, it got to the sixth season. Now, my neighbor said to me, knowing what I was doing about, you know, financial system and my general interest in corporations and society, said, I got, you got to meet this guy, Ponytail, and we're sitting around coffee. And later, he says, you know, you ought to teach a course with him. And that was when I became, I said, you know, I'm curious about this sector. Guy knows everybody, okay, because everybody was a cameo in, sure. in, uh, in Silicon Valley. And he knows about the history of the internet and all of those things. And he's not an economist, he's a, you know, an anthropologist by training, he's sort of a, 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 a producer, a writer. And um, so we embark on this MBA course and, and while they were writing the sixth season. So they end up putting me as, a, as an advisor. I mean, they didn't pay me anything. I just signed a bunch of paper and they gave me $200, which is like a <laughs> bottle of wine for all of this, just because they didn't want me to later claim that you know I gave them sure. some idea, copyright, uh, because they it was impacting their coverage of, of sort of governance issues, mission statements. They mocked right. mission statement, the right. plagiarism of mission statement, these kinds of things, because it's like you know, mission statement. So, so talk is cheap, as as I said. And so, we taught this course to MBA, entitled "Is Internet Broken," and uh, and then this was spring quarter of two thousand eight. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. 
But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Something like that. And then, so as they were doing, in the fall, they finished, they were showing the, the thing and they were filming, like early in the fall, they were filming the last episode. And so he calls and says, okay, you guys, I got them to fly four of you down to LA and be cameo in the very last episode and hang out here for the day and see how we film it. See all the scenes, see the prison scene, see this, all these different things. It was a, it was an abandoned uh, uh, kind of car manufacturing of some sort. It was a, just like a bunch of like warehouses where they had it. I've never seen a, a, a show, um, you know, a, non, a, a, a fictional show uh, being filmed cameras there were all the rooms and that wrapped up in 2019 right the end that, of 2019 that was yeah exactly so this so so this was 2019 spring into fall and so we were there we flew down to LA and we we had to bring our cap and gown if we had it or they would put on us they had a whole thing of cap and gowns for this graduation uh thing event that we were sort of part of. So we, they had all these people they recruit for the day to be just sitting there. And then, uh, and you know, as long as you don't utter a word. So if we uttered one word in the movie, we would have to be unionized. Gotcha. So but if just, we were just silent, then they then could film one. us and we could be there. So they had another scene that they filmed in the hallways of the sort of Stanford University offices. And we got whiteboards to decorate. So I have a certain corner in the whiteboard behind Mildich when he was kind of, you know, reflecting at the very final scene. And we saw it being filmed and then we hung out with him. So it was kind of my reward. I'm like, you know, when I teach banking, I don't get to have so much fun. But when I thought about the Internet, I actually got to see. And my point there was only here in this whole discussion is I've come to appreciate how important media is, all forms of media. So even a movie, it shapes how people think. Perceived there was them, a sure. scene there where the guy's in front of Congress and then he rips the mic and you know, this whole thing. And that was modeled after Mark Zuckerberg going sure. to Congress. He kind of looks like him. So much fun. So let me jump to our speed round, our favorite questions, which will blow through pretty quickly, yep. starting with, aside from Silicon Valley, yep. 
What have you been streaming? Tell us what's kept you entertained. So I'm a little bit of a latecomer to finish it, but I've loved Succession, which I fin- finally mm-hmm. finished very recently. And now I'm intent on finishing Borgen because I had a... Borgen is about Danish. It's like the, it's like the West Wing for mm-hmm. Denmark. And it had this female prime minister, etc. Anyway, it's kind of few season of a Netflix uh, series, uh, Borgen, and um, so it's very good. I mean, I know there's you know We Crash and other things. So, but that's that's enough for for. for I that. just started We Crash. It's actually very good. I'm I about heard that halfway through. I, it. My co-teacher um, tells me it's it's and I love. But I read read so much about We Work. I'm kind of sick of it, especially well, being Israeli. I love the book Adam Cult of We. Cult of We. Yeah. And and the whatchamacallit, the. Uh, the show we seems crashed. very true, to, and there was true a to that. Podcast, yeah. Yeah. Um, tell us about your mentors who helped to shape your career. So this advisor, Steve Ross at Yale, mm-hmm. was very important to getting me interested in finance, and in some respect, in this sort of cosmic view of where I am today and my transformation of my, where he was there, unfortunately he died a few years ago, but he was there to sign my petitions and encourage me mm-hmm. all the way to to takes a village. Um, was there to kind of tell me I'm not going mad when I hear all this nonsense and to and to approve of what I was doing, even though in some of my criticism of academics, I criticized some of my sort of academic brothers who were also his students, but he sided with me. So that was very meaningful to me. Uh, yeah, so he was my main advisor who got me, because right now, for knowing all the finance I know, I'm able to call the book. That's great. Um, tell us about some of your favorite books. What are you reading now, and what are your all-time favorites? Oh, my God. So my all-time favorite is A Little Prince. Mm-hmm. That's just the book. Uh, I'm reading a lot, and now I'm listening, so that makes it faster because I don't read as fast as I would like to. But I'm reading lots of books. Right at the moment, I sort of finished a, a direct, and I was like, The World for Sale and Freezing Order, which you discussed, Flying Blind on Boeing, you know, Sickening is a book on the healthcare sector and how we know all our healthcare system very scary, worse than banking to some extent. American Kleptocracy. Right now, I'm reading a book very close to home called Who Killed Jane Jane Stanford, which is like, whoa. I mean, all the stories we tell at Stanford and that history of Stanford going back to the 19th century and Gilded Age and the Stanfords, whoa. So that's a history professor at Stanford who wrote a book, Who Killed Jane Stanford. Jane Stanford was very important to the creation of Stanford, but right now, of course, Stanford is way off from what she wanted. And yesterday I got the, the Bond King uh, from mm-hmm. Mary Child, so that's uh, my next um, that's book. a great so list. A whole bunch, you, yeah. That's a that's a really good list. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either investing, finance, academia, or technology? My first advice, because I've learned it kind of the hard way, is watch out for the assumptions you're mm-hmm. making and other people are making. So when people say things, there's often implicit assumptions they're making, and some bad assumptions can take you down. Even LTCM with all the brilliant people sure. went down on bad assumptions. So bad assumptions are very dangerous. And then of course, you know, you have to kind of be careful not to uh, to maintain the big picture, to to beware of losing yourself in 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 cer- certain certain activities. So so maintain the big picture and check for assumptions. Kind of my main advice. Hmm. Good good advice. And our final question. What do you know about the world of banking and finance and regulations today that you wish you knew 30 or so years ago when you were first getting started? I had no idea about how much politics, 
laws and law enforcement matter to economic outcomes. I just lived in the little bubble of economics where we make assumptions. Mm-hmm. And when I sort of realized what was going on in banking, I started questioning all the assumptions that I made before. And it's been my sort of journey ever since. It's like, huh, that's sort of interesting. Is this true? And you know, what's actually going on? So I've become a sort of real explorer uh, of, of what happens when I don't make the assumptions that I make or when I question people's assumptions. Did, did you spend any time researching the Canadian banking regulation? Because when I was writing Bailout Nation, that was my contra- compare yeah, and contrast. It's so different it, from the U.S. system. It is, and I know a little bit about it. Uh, but you know, it is a very different system because the U.S. is a very fragmented system, and the Canadian system is basically a system of five banks or something like that, all pretty tightly regulated, but right. also very profitable. So essentially, the way one of the ways I formulate the difference is that we we subsidize debt for banking and they essentially subsidize equity by giving them a big charter value mm-hmm. because they're because they're so you know entrenched in their oligopoly quite quite fascinating we have been speaking with professor anat admadi uh, thank you professor for being so generous with your time if you enjoy this podcast well be sure and check out any of our previous 400 or so you can find those at spotify itunes wherever you get your uh, favorite podcast from. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps us put these conversations together each week. My audio engineer is Justin Milliner. Uh, Paris Wald is my producer. Sean Russo is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.